Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil, and today I'm in conversation with Virginia Commonwealth University professor, uh, Dr. Michael Dickinson, and we're on here to talk about his new book, first book, Almost Dead, Slavery and Social Rebirth in the Black Urban Atlantic from 1680 to 1807. And so, Dr. Dickinson, my brother, how you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's definitely an honor. Good, man. Well, hey, I'm I'm definitely glad that we can, you know, make this work, man. You know, very busy guy and, uh, you know, really excited to, to talk today, man. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested to start here with our conversation. You know, can you talk to us about your experiences uh, that, that led you to this particular book, Almost Dead, you know, because I know this is your first book and, you know, I look forward to being in your seat um, at the end of the decade. Uh, and so, you know, take us back to, to the uh, Genesis story. Um, and I'm intentionally using that uh, word there uh, for, for this book, man. So, so let's start there. Certainly. So, uh, so there there are a number of sort of Genesis, mini Genesis stories within uh, the larger Genesis story. Um, thinking about some of the ideological foundations of the book um, and the geographic scope, but I, I'm going to direct my attention because I think really where the project took off was when I was a grad student in an archive, and um, I was really interested about some of these. Um, the, the connections between uh, port cities and lived realities of port cities with these uh, black communities, enslaved communities that were um, that were being created um, in order to survive. And so I was I was fascinated by that and looking at some of these commercial connections. And I, I stumbled upon uh, the narrative of uh, Jeffrey Brace. And that was really when the project took a more a human turn and it was less about the commercial connections uh, and more about the lived experiences of what it means to be within these urban networks um, and forced to rebuild, recreate uh, and try to um, and, and try to survive. And so, so, so to follow up on that too, um, you know, the, the, Something that I've been thinking about a lot, and, and this goes to what we had spoken about, spoken about before we got started, uh, because we share an uh, uh, advisor, uh, Dr. Eric Armstrong Dunbar. Hello, I know you're listening. <laughs> um, and I've been really thinking a lot about survival. Um, 
and and you know, I think it's in a way interest uh, very topical to our moment because you know we're not a post-pandemic society um, yet. Um, and my dissertation project comes out of uh, living through the pandemic's uh, earliest chapters, um, the, the current one, the COVID nineteen one, and so I'm also interested to know why survival as um a rooting interest not you know not rooting like cheer cheer but like rooting you um why was that in particular going back to your experiences in graduate school at the university of delaware um why was that an interesting uh why, why was that a, a rooting interest for you for this for this topic why why why, why survival so great question, um, and uh, I will I will connect this with uh, your background here because um, one of the certainly the ideological foundation comes with uh, Stephanie Smallwood's work on saltwater slavery, and I, I first encountered that book um, in Professor Dunbar's class uh, many many years ago. Uh, a special shout out to the very brilliant Dr. Eric Armstrong Dunbar. Um, and and so really interacting with uh, with Smallwood's work, Smallwood really envisions the processes of capture, of forced migration, of uh, this collective process of commodification um, as a systematic, but also human, right? And so she, she uses this idea of social rebirth to help us understand how enslaved uh, peoples are, are, um, are uh, experiencing this, are... Um, are contending against um, against oppression, are, are trying to survive within this Atlantic context. But I mean, I, I remember reading and and she sort of leaves the, the study uh, at the arrival in the Americas. And so I, as, a, as a grad student, as a student, um, I was uh, I was very curious about what's next, right? How do we understand this idea of social rebirth and in these uh, in these port cities uh, of the Atlantic to really see how this unfolds once they're uh, once they are uh, are employed in these forced labor systems, right? And um, and their their lives in the Americas begin. How do we see that actually? unfold and so uh, and so that really helps me uh, helped me to um, to see this story of survival um, in ways that are that feature the Atlantic feature urban centers but also I am most importantly feature the lived experiences of enslaved individuals because I think uh, what we do see is um, you mentioned survival right and the pandemic and and some of these uh, this these very real moments of trauma and suffering but I, I think that that's only part of the story right uh, the other part of the story is is the is the humanity within that right? The ability to survive uh, within within oppression, within uh, within the this uh, these emotional um, trying taxing experiences. Um, of course, a pandemic is not is not slavery. Let's not equate the two. But I think the the larger point is that. Um, that two things can be true at the same time, right? We can have these moments of um, of trauma, suffering, and the like, um, but it's also accompanied by resilience and um, and uh, human beings' uh, ability to um, to endure. And I think this is a great segue to talk about um, another book that you know the listeners can't see, but you know they can hear me flap the the pages of it. Um, and the book that I'm Clapping the pages about um, is uh, Orlando Patterson's Slavery and Social Death, a Comparative Study um, that I have here right now uh, with your book, Almost Dead. And so um, it's for, for many of our listeners uh, to New Books in African American Studies, uh, Orlando Patterson's uh, Slavery and Social Death, it, it might not be, um, it's probably not a new book to them, 
uh, and so they may have uh, maybe seen a closeness uh, with, with almost dead. And so I, that's certainly not um, uh, unintentional. So with that being said, how, how does um, Almost Dead engage with Patterson? And also um, take us back to some of the earliest times when you actually read um, Slavery and Social Death as well, which is a book that obviously Smallwood engages with her work too. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Uh, Smallwood engages with uh, Orlando Patterson's argument of social death, and, and uh, um, ironically enough, I actually I actually engaged with and, and read uh, slavery and social death after reading Saltwater Slavery. Right, seeing these these references to the idea of social death and wanting to really wrap my head around um, this this argument and the ideological foundations of of social death. And and I will say, I mean, the work of Orlando Patterson is essential, right, to um, to uh, the study of slavery and the historiography of slavery. Um, he's a brilliant scholar, and slavery and social death is just one of um, one of his multiple studies. And really thinking about slavery in a comparative framework, and thinking about you know what it means to be enslaved uh, from a theoretical perspective. Um, so it, it's essential. Uh, but I mean, I. I, I think we can appreciate and and uh, laud what what Orlando Patterson is trying to do with this concept of social death, which is you know uh, help us to understand the impact of of slavery on um, on the uh, the the realities of those enslaved from um, uh, from a social context, from a cultural context, and the like. Uh, but I, um, the argument I make in in my book is that that only tells us part of the story, right? Um, that if we think of social death as sort of this fixed uh, state of being, um, it, it belies a more nuanced understanding of uh, of the humanities of those enslaved, meaning that they are actively working to um, to rebuild, right? To um, keep these connections to West Africa, to create uh, new kinship and community ties. They're they're uh, they're constantly working to maintain their humanity, and that does not negate the trauma, right? That that uh, that I, I think um, uh, Orlando Patterson was trying to point to and highlight, um, and in various ways with this idea of social death. But I think it really gives us a more dynamic portrait of what it, uh, what these lived experiences are like. And I think that's where uh, Stephanie Smallwood's trying to push our attention to with this idea of social rebirth, and and I, I'm trying to uh, really help us to understand that I think more deeply um, in, in once we get into these these cities of the Atlantic. And thinking about the the process of making your book published through um, the University of Georgia Press's Race in the Atlantic World, 1700 to 1900 series, um, can you tell us a bit about some of the biggest challenges you face while researching, writing, and ultimately constructing um, Almost Dead? Um, certainly, they are many, right? And producing a book, especially a first book, um, uh, I think the the simplest answer is the pandemic itself, right? I, I was actually writing and um, and collecting uh, more material during the pandemic while it hit, and so um, as as you know, as our listeners likely know, um, the archives were by and large shut down, and it was hard to get access to books, and 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 um, and I I had conducted much of the research already, uh, but of course, there's always more to do and um and uh it's also you know it required me to have a level of um a level of ingenuity with my sources right um and and so i think that's one of the um 
the bright sides to having to set during a pandemic with sources that, you know, that I've already accumulated, it, it forced me to think deeply and, and have these sources set with me in order to sort of, in sort of many ways, suck the marrow out of a source um, and, and really inhabit the space of, uh, of these enslaved actors and to better understand uh, their plight, but also their, their resistance and their survival. And, um, and so uh, in so much that, you know, uh, my work was limited by the pandemic. And I think we can think about that in ter- and for other authors during the pandemic as well. I think it also forced us to see our, our uh, sources more deeply um, and really invest in those sources that we, um, that we already had um, in ways that I think are very generative and very important in, in trying to recreate the world of slavery. And one of the key sources uh, you had actually mentioned before um, dealing with uh, Jeffrey Brace, um, one of the enslaved actors in, in Almost Dead. Um, so can you actually talk to the audience a bit about the role that, um, and some, some folks say ex-slave uh, narr- narrators um, and, and their narratives um, played in Almost Dead's uh, creation for you? Because it seemed like you uh, used, uh, and or not, I should say, you leaned on many of them uh, for free work too. So take us, take us into the role that they play. Certainly. So, uh, so for, for our listeners, the actual, the actual title of the book is taken from Jeffrey Brace's narrative. Um, he was, uh, an enslaved man. He was a revolutionary war veteran. Um, and he has this incredible testimony and, and, uh, there's this quote that, uh, he, that, um, these, that he, um, that he gives while he's in Bridgetown Barbados and he's suffering and he tells another enslaved man uh, who, who's checking on him and he says, you know, I'm almost dead. And the argument I make in the book is that he's speaking, of course, to a physical reality, but also a, a social, uh, a cultural, a psychological reality, right? When uh, when we think about the process of commodification and, and trying to um, – to, um, build upon what is lost, right, in uh, forced migration from West Africa. And so really these testimonies, not only Jeffrey Brace, but there are a number of figures um, who, are, uh, who are really featured in the book um, that, that help us to understand what it means to, um, to uh, see this process, not from an ideological perspective or not merely from a theoretical perspective, right, but from a lived uh, perspective of what it means to try to hold on to um, to memories of West African culture, what it means to hold on to memories of loved ones, what it means to try and create these kinship connections, what it means to try and create these these new community connections um, that uh, that there these testimonies really shed light upon. And, and to illustrate that, I mean, the the chapters of the titles of the book are actually quotes from uh, from testimonies of enslaved folks um, that help us, I think, to think really thematically about how does this process of social rebirth unfold and uh, and how do we better understand it um, through the eyes of those enslaved? Because I think it's it's uh, it's difficult for us to really inhabit that space, but their words um, and, and uh, and their deeds and, and their testimonies really help us to, um, to really see this, these larger social processes in uh, very real ways that are often uh, difficult for us to um, to wrap our heads around as um, as folks in the uh, in the time period in which we live. Um, race, space, geography, just generally speaking, also uh, play, I would say, important roles in almost dead. And so with that being said, can you actually detail for the listeners uh, the differences you found in enslaved experiences of folks 
in urban environments that are uh, the primary focus of your study and folks who are living and in, in, in being enslaved in more uh, rural um, areas, which are probably more of the, um, if people close their eyes and think about the visual culture of enslavement, that the rural areas are usually the areas that they're thinking about. So, so detail the differences uh, for, for the listeners, if you can, or if, if <laughs> right, right. So uh, you're, you're right. And when we think about, at least in uh, the popular imagination, slavery, we think about, you know, the rural plantation. And so and so uh, a part of what I'm trying to do with the book is really help us to think about slavery, um, not necessarily limited to these rural plantations, but also in terms of movement in the Atlantic and um, thinking about the mainland and the, and the Caribbean. And so just sort of broad strokes. I mean, um, we're thinking about terms of differences between urban uh, slavery and, and plantation slavery. Slavery, the types of labor, right, um, that is, that uh, is being undertaken. Uh, we can also think about the proximity of loved ones, right, especially on plantations where there are uh, large enslaved populations. It's it's um, a higher probability to have loved ones closer, um, as well as the ability to um, hold on to West African culture, right, because um, there there is the, these larger close populations of um, of enslaved individuals within a, a certain space, right, uh, versus an urban setting where they're they're by and large uh, more spread out um the whole the slave holdings or holdings of slaveholders of are um are uh, more limited um and so uh also we can talk about you know the the ability to be mobile in urban settings um that uh that there is uh, there in many ways there there is uh, some more mobility or options for mobility by and large right and so these are broad strokes as well um, and we can also think about the, the the spread of information, right? This is where um, Julius Scott's, you know, the common wind comes into play, right? That these port cities are really essential in spreading information, um, that these enslaved folks are, are um, uh, tend to be, you know, get information before, right? Plan of their counterparts on plantations. Um, and so it runs the gambit um, about some of these, these distinctions and differences. But I would like to sw- flip this your question to the opposite end, because I think one of the things that the book tries to highlight, right, is that there are some very real similarities between slavery on the plantation and in urban spaces. And what I mean by that is that uh, we oftentimes think of urban slavery as um, less brutal, for instance, um, that it's it provides more possibility, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I mean, the urban slavery still revol- revolves around and, re- and is relying upon force and fear in very real ways, right? Um, that there's still this public nature of punishment that's necessary to have and keep the slave system intact. Uh, we can also think about the, the ability and efforts of um, enslaved individuals uh, to hold on to West African traditions. Uh, that's present in urban spaces, just like it is on the plantation. It just looks different, right? Because the possibilities are different in terms of gathering and in terms of um, the frequency of, of being able to come together um, and the like. But there's still efforts to really hold on to these West African cultural traditions in urban settings I, I, in ways that I don't think we we tend to really highlight as much as on the plantation. So those are, those are a couple of ways that we actually see that there are some very real similarities um, uh, between urban slavery and plantation slavery, um, and and uh, and we can go from there as well. Thinking about, for example, brutality, right? Um, the we think about you know the plantation being extraordinarily brutal, but I mean, so were urban settings oftentimes, depending on who the slaveholder was and and um, and the circumstances. And so what I what I think we get from that comparison and looking at 
you know, these urban settings and urban slavery is an understanding of the nuances and the complexity of what it means to be enslaved um, on a on an individual basis, uh, irrespective of um, of geographic setting. And first of all, thank you for flipping and reversing it, like uh, Missy Elliott said. Uh, so I appreciate you for that one. Um, but also, you know, you you choose Philadelphia, Bridgetown, and Kingston as your three sites of study. Um, why did you choose those three out of all the places that you could have chosen in um, the Black urban Atlantic? Um, why did you choose uh, those three uh, port cities? Yes, fair question. So, um, if if I could take us back um, and give some some pers- some perspective on this, uh, I'll I'll start with uh, perspective on me. Um, I'm actually from Northern Delaware, which is in many ways, as you as you well know, right? In many ways, a, a, a suburb of Philadelphia. And Very much. Um, I used to, when I was growing up, we used to um, go to church every Sunday right outside the city. And so, cities. I've always been fascinated by cities um, in the first place, Philadelphia in particular. Um, and uh, and I, I was very much interested in some of these urban networks that are coming, um, connecting Philadelphia to the Atlantic, particularly when we think about the enslaved population that actually um, that that uh, is um, living and employed in Philadelphia. Most of them come from the Caribbean, um, and most of them, of course, come from Bridgetown and Kingston. And so I wanted to look at this, this urban network um, to understand what it means to be uh, enslaved as part of this, as part of the urban Atlantic. Now, I think... Um, Part of what I'm trying to do is put the push the conversation forward with this study. Uh, but I say that because I mean, in an ideal world, uh, perhaps maybe a couple books from now or someone you know down the line, I, a, a really comprehensive study I think would be useful, right? Including studies like New York and Charleston, right, and understanding these these movements. Um, um, uh, thinking about you know Gregory Gregory O'Malley and the, and and this um, he talks about you know the uh, intercolonial slave trade, right, and so these movements are real between these spaces and urban, uh, these port cities are, are essential to that. But, but thinking about this, this network, right, of connection in Philadelphia and the Caribbean, I think we can get some sense of the representation of these populations and what it means to, um, to have uh, movement between them, what it means to uh, live, have lived experiences within these cities. And also, um, to what extent, right, uh, is the larger point in in this trying to understand Philadelphia as uh, as this sort of iconic hub of freedom, of Black freedom, um, in the in the late uh, 18th century, by the late 18th century and into the 19th century. And so, what does that say when we think about um, sort of our mental schema, thinking about you know cities in the Caribbean versus Philadelphia, and understanding that um, that there are these very real connections and that the slave system in many ways has similarities. We t- I just talked about, you know, force and fear being tenants. And so uh, what I wanted to highlight here is the complexity of slavery in ways that uh, um, I think historians uh, should and, and um, ought to think more deeply about. Um, and we can only really get th- that and get those perspectives if we see this through the eyes of uh, folks who are enslaved in these networks of the urban Atlantic. And also, um, as a follow-up, something that I wanted to, to ask you about in connection to Philadelphia, um, and, and it's something that I saw, I was like, it's very true. So, so can you actually talk about what your book, Almost Dead, tries to tell us about the level of brutality that slavery 
that, that enslaved people encountered in the city of brotherly love. Um, because I think the point that you were trying to make is, is very important in terms of making people understand about gradations of, of enslavement and the brutality, but also how quote unquote Northern, uh, or Northern North Atlantic cities like a Philadelphia, you know, it, enslaved people encountered things that enslaved people everywhere would have encountered. So can, can you talk more about that and unpack that? Certainly. So um, I, I think one way we can see this, I mean, um, is the is the similarity of laws, right, that are enacted for Pennsylvania and, and Philadelphia, right, in terms of governing the enslaved population. Um, they, they look remarkably similar to laws throughout, you know, um, throughout British America um, in trying to regulate this enslaved population. We can think about this in terms of um, uh, some of the runaway slave advertisements I, I, um, I look at in detail. We can think about this in terms of um, some of the court cases of enslaved folks being trained tried and, um, and uh, some of the reprisals they face. And, and so the point that I'm trying to make here, and, and, um, and I think that your question uh, leads us to, is that uh, even though we think about Philadelphia, again, as a space of liberty, and we think about sort of northern enlightenment and, and, the, and the system of slavery um, uh, looking very different, right, what we can see is uh, very real examples of, um, of for example, pu- public punishment, torture of enslaved individuals that uh, we can see uh, that uh, there are, of course, uh, cruel slaveholders in Philadelphia, just like there are in spaces in the Caribbean or in the, in the American South. And, and so what, what I think uh, that does for us is help us, uh, helps us understand um, for enslaved individuals, right, uh, for these lived experiences of what it means to be enslaved, there's some very real complexity here. And if we if we sort of uh, if we allow our minds to limit and create sort of a a, um, a broad brush about what slavery looks like uh, in uh, in the Mid Atlantic, for instance, compared to the Caribbean, uh, we do a disservice to individuals who actually experience these things, um, extreme brutality in places like Philadelphia, um, that that are. Um, that are uh, important in understanding the impact of slavery on the lives of those enslaved. Yeah, and like I said, like that—that's that point that you made also reminds me of why, you know, in the different works that I want to to contribute in, in my career, um, writing about Philadelphia is always going to be is always going to be there. You know, like you, it's one of my, um, it's a city that I'm very much fascinated by, especially after having, uh, after having lived in the city slash lived around the city uh-huh. uh, for pretty much the last three years up until uh, midpoint of last year. And it's just, you know, it's a city of the Philadelphia Negro from, from <laughs> Du Bois. And it, it, there, there, there's so many different you know, reasons uh, to, to be interested in the city. Um, you know, obviously now sports-wise, you know, they might uh, win the Super Bowl, of course. But, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll, 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 by the time this is published, we will know uh, if, if, the, if Philadelphia and Jalen Hurts would have, uh, you know, gone to the Super Bowl here. But, um, you know, uh, moving back to, to, to more new books matters. Um, each city that you chose... Um, is also quite different, obviously, from each other. Um, so returning back to gradations here uh-huh. um, and, and, and social rebirth, can you 
can you tell us about the different levels of social rebirth available to um, enslaved individuals and communities in each in each city because their for instance their number of uh, enslaved people are obviously much different from specifically especially Philadelphia. Um, so can you speak a bit about the gradations of social rebirth available to enslaved individuals and communities? Certainly. So, um, so this is where it, it becomes really fascinating with this this urban network, right? Because we what we can do since you know we, we know that most of the enslaved folks from in Philadelphia they come from the Caribbean. That there are uh, there are slaveholders, merchants that are moving back and forth. That you know there are these very real connections. Uh, many of the uh, many of sort of the we would call them sort of founding fathers of uh, in Philadelphia. Many of them uh, either come from the Caribbean or have connections to the Caribbean, right? And so uh, what that and and of course these populations of enslaved folks, right? Many of them are coming from the Caribbean. So what that allows us to do is is sort of, um, through these connections, be able to see, you know, how these uh, these populations, enslaved populations, engage in social rebirth to, uh, in, in ways that look different depending on the geographic setting. And by, what I mean by that, I'll give you an illustration. Um, there's, there's a chapter in the book that really looks at some of um, these, these cultural gatherings that happen throughout the uh, urban Atlantic on Sundays and holidays, right? It happens in Kingston, happens in Bridgetown, happens in Philadelphia, happens in um, um, New York, right? Um, that there are, these, there are these gatherings. Now, the extent to which they gather and the frequency varies. But, but what that looks like um, is different too, from sort of an anthropological perspective, right? Um, and this is, we can see this for those those folks who have read Equiano's narrative. He talks about these gatherings in Kingston, for instance, and observing them. And he talks about, you know, the groupings. And so what we can see is um, if we could recreate this, right, um, and, and see this, you know, put on our time machines and go back, what we can see is uh, likely is that these gatherings would look um, different in terms of um, heterogeneity and homogeneity, right? Uh, meaning that because there's a larger population in Kingston on this spectrum, a larger enslaved population, Kingston has the largest in uh, in Anglo America uh, by the time we get to the, the late 18th century. Um, we can see on this spectrum of um, of of what this looks like in Kingston, there will be more groups, and these more groups will adhere uh, more closely to uh, to West African ethnic origins or or West African ethnic groups versus in Philadelphia, where there's a smaller enslaved population, there's a smaller West African population. So it it requires a more um, collective, homogeneous right gatherings where these folks are dancing, they're playing songs, they're they're singing right, and they're they're hearkening back to West Africa. It's a similar process right of trying to carry over um, and and connecting and and remembering West African traditions, trying to rebuild and reconstitute in the Americas in these urban spaces. But it looks different depending on the circumstances of population, of... of, of space, of of uh, any number of things, right? And so, and so, it um, this is where we sort of see the fascinating dynamic unfold um, within these these uh, this comparative framework of these cities. And it's something that I'm also interested in because, first of all, I really need to visit both Bridgetown and Kingston, just <laughs> just generally speaking. Um, you know. It, Actually, you know what? Let me ask you about that. Um, sure. 
were first of all, were you able to? I know obviously we've talked about Philadelphia, but in your research experiences, were you able to visit um, both Bridgetown and, and Kingston as well? I, I was. I um, actually did research at um, at UWE. Uh, they, they have campuses in Kingston, Kingston, and um, so Mona's um, essentially uh, Kingston, and the uh, Bridgetown campus um, was also I, I stayed at, and I was able to do research in the National Archives there, and it was a delightful experience. I definitely recommend visiting uh, if you have time, at least now or in the future. Um, it was a wonderful experience. It's it's really powerful also to sort of see these spaces, right, uh, where we can think about you know, Equiano talks about Spring Path is where these these collective celebrations happen in Kingston, for instance, right? Um, and we can think about you know these uh, it's it's we can sort of imagine right these large populations gathering there and and trying to uh, pinpoint what that looks like in terms of the spatial organization of the city or both cities in this case. Good, good. Because like I'm realizing this now while writing my dissertation that it's. There's there's something that you lose when you don't get the opportunity to visit mm-hmm. the places that you're writing about. Now, obviously, you can't go everywhere um, right. necessarily, but you know, even just for me, just thinking about, it, I'm like, damn. By the time this dissertation is over, I need to at least visit. Like I've been <laughs> to London, but I also need to visit Nova Scotia mm. um, and Halifax to see where the um, Black refugee migrations went. Um, it's a dream to be able to go to like, you know, to Sierra Leone. Um, but you know, that might be for post dissertation <laughs> and you know, what you're doing for the book? Going to Sierra Leone, bro. Traveling. Like that, that yeah, that's gonna have to be it. Um but you know, actually that's actually a great build up for the next question. So one of the things that um I was also interested in in, in your book is how you um how you're able to capture and narrate um, the spiritual lives of uh, of Black folks and, and people of African descent, and so what um, what methods and and what was your um, what was your entry point for for doing that in terms of once again your method and also um, you know ultimately how were you able to to capture it because I think you know that's a, obviously a very important pieces well going back to the celebrations even as well yeah. so, so how were you able to to capture that for, for your readers yes so uh wonderful question because i we can't really understand social rebirth unless we really delve into the, the spiritual realm right um and and a, a useful entry point for this as well as for i think all the parts of of this book and i think our conversations around slavery in general the most useful entry points are the you know the lived perspectives uh the words the the thoughts of enslaved individuals right and so um and so we can see is that uh that part of uh the ability for these enslaved individuals to survive a large part is this connection to the spiritual realm, whether that's through um, through West African traditions or whether that's later on uh, we talk about in the book through uh, through Christianity, right? And so. Um, and so there's a there's for example there's a um, a really powerful scene in Jeffrey Brace's narrative where he he talks about um, he talks about the uh, returning to his homeland to his community to his village uh, to his people right while he sleeps 
um, and uh, he talks about all the warmth and the and the um, and really this um, this powerful experience. And it, it's really powerful, particularly because he's he's having this sort of uh, he uses uses the term warmth multiple times. It matters because at the moment, at the time, he's suffering what we would qualify as torture by a new slaveholder who has him sleeping on a cold floor in mainland America during winter, right? Um, and uh, he's not pro- doesn't have proper clothing. He feels like he's going to freeze to death. But this is um, this these dreams, these connections to a spiritual realm are, are able to give him the the ability to survive, to push through, right? Um, that that's what really keeps him going. Um, and so uh, it matters to the lived realities of these enslaved individuals, whether that's through, as, as we just discussed, some of these collective gatherings, right? These are Those are spiritual connections that they're making in these uh, collective gatherings to their ancestors and to their, uh, to their communities in West Africa, or whether that's, um, that's funeral rites and visiting graves of, of, uh, of loved ones, right? That what they're doing is, um, is connecting to ancestors and, and asking favor, asking them to solicit, uh, to solicit, excuse me, and, um, and ask for, they're asking for favor from ancestors to try and watch over them and, and, and protect them. Right. And so we can also see this, um, as I mentioned in the book, thinking about, you know, these, um, you're thinking about you know these black churches that are established in first in Philadelphia in Anglo America in the seventeen late 1700s, uh, Mother Bethel and St Thomas's right and how we think about these uh, spiritual connections um, that are uh, that are are really important in black worship practices and in black churches right and and so to really enter that I think is also to have a uh, to dig deeply um, in a cultural understanding of West Africa and West African uh, cosmologies, right? Um, of course, that's that's uh, distinct based off of ethnic groups, but really thinking about, you know, how can we understand how the how enslaved Africans viewed their world, the spiritual realm, and how does that translate into later generations, right? These things that are passed down, um, even even through and and impacting right black worship practices in Christianity. And for me, that was something that, you know, I knew that you, knowing knowing you, I knew that you wouldn't leave that stone unturned. Uh, but I'm also, you know, as someone who is also, you know, needing to not just rely on the quote-unquote revolutionary era experiences of Black folks, okay. but to always, you know, return back to um, West African traditions as well. Okay. Um, especially when understanding sovereignty and um, quote unquote resistance as well, that was something that for me your book really helped me to to, to think about and also to look at sources as well. So, um, but obviously we've spoken about um, uh, Jeffrey Brace a lot, and so to 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 go even further. Um, your epilogue details a remarkable story of recovery work. Um, so I ain't gonna spoil nothing. So can you dis- describe uh, this remarkable uh, experience for the listeners? 
Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so I'll spoil it, but I think it's it's best read. So hopefully our listeners will pick up the copy and and read the epilogue because what what I was really excited about was the uh, I actually reached out to a couple of descendants of Jeffrey Brace, right? And I think it it was really meaningful to me because I, out of all the narratives I really examined, I think his uh, spoke the most to me. Um, though you know there are a number of of individuals, actors, testimonies that are are at the forefront of the book. I mean, uh, Jeffrey Brace's um, I think has the deepest impact on the book. Uh, uh, if if we had to um, if we had to to make that um, uh, make that analysis right and so I uh, so it was really uh, it was extraordinarily exciting when uh, two of his descendants Miss Shauna and Miss Rhonda um, they they are uh, descendants of um, Jeffrey Brace and they were um, happy to speak with me about their ancestor and it was especially meaningful because I, uh, that they were black women. Um, and, and really thinking about the perspective, because we don't get a lot of insight into, for example, Jeffrey Brace's wife and uh, her perspective. And, and so I, I, um, I, I wanted to really uh, feature Black women in, in the epilogue and really um, understand um, uh, what the perspectives of Miss Shauna and Miss Rhonda were and thinking about their ancestor and the afterlives of slavery and the legacy of slavery and really thinking about bringing this into the present in ways that I think are um, – that are uh, – I think clear for them, given that their ancestor right left a testimony. But I think it really speaks to the effort of that recovery work for people of African descent throughout the diaspora, right? And so they had some extraordinary, um, uh, extraordinary insights into um, how how do we bring this into the present and why does it matter? And I think they also give us some thoughts and and um, on their own work to try to reconcile and deal with uh, the legacy of slavery, um, with uh, contacting, for instance, uh, some. Uh, some uh, some white actors or the, des- the descendants of white actors in uh, Brace's narrative who are extraordinarily racist to him and um, and go out of their way to try to um, to steal from him and take his land etc cetera, etc cetera. and they're trying they were they actually made efforts to try to speak to the descendants the descendants of course uh, I don't want to say of course but unfortunately they uh, they weren't um, they they weren't receptive to that conversation, but I mean that is the hard work of dealing with you know dealing with the legacy of slavery and dealing with um, dealing with the afterlives of slavery and thinking about how to push forward in ways that will be productive and and deal with these these this very real uh, trauma and hurt that slavery leaves behind as well as we can talk about systemic racial oppression in the present. And yeah, like that that story of trying to converse with the with the people that once enslaved your ancestors mm-hmm. and in particular it's not even just an amorphous you know like we see him we read about him these are his experiences and and to you know in different spaces try to confront this particular history it's it's something that so many black people you know, especially since uh, in, since the digital turn has opened up so much, many more opportunities for people to learn about their history. Um, you know, it's 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 tough. Even even in one of my um, one of my family areas in South Carolina, hmm. we've even been trying to do some of that work too. Especially now that we can better detail the geographical space where our uh, ancestors were enslaved and being able to understand like, oh, wow, the whole reason why we're, we were enslaved in this particular area is because 
the patriarch of this particular family was a, I think it was either Revolutionary War, War of eighteen twelve veteran, mm. and the you know the land grants and all that stuff. So so it's yeah it's it's, it's an it's an ugly you know at lar- oftentimes an ugly uh, unfortunate enterprise. Um, well, so I I think I mean it it doesn't have to be right and and so i think that's the, that's the larger i think that's part of the takeaway from miss shauna and miss ronda right they have mixed they have mixed experiences right i mean with some white descendants they're able to actually have those conversations others aren't trying to have them at all right and so um i it's again it's hard work um it's it's something that can be very successful and, and work toward you know reconciling with the past, um, I will say, I don't think it should be incumbent upon the descendants of of uh, enslaved folks to to do all of that work, right? Um, so this this is where you know we have a larger you know uh, larger societal discussion about how do we move forward, what does this look like, and and uh, and of course both sides need to come to the table, right? And it shouldn't be incumbent yeah. on on just one side to do that work. But but my point is that you know um, there there is there can be successes, right? They have do have some success with that. Of course, they do have uh, less than success with some of these efforts. But I think their efforts are um, are noble, in, in, uh, especially given all the things they read about how their ancestor worked to, uh, for, to fight for you know, the country, right? He was a Revolutionary War veteran um, to gain his freedom, to try and carve out a life for himself. Uh, but also, even in freedom, he, is, he actually experiences an extraordinary amount of amount of racism. There's actually a scholarship at the University of Vermont named after him um, because he actually wow, settles yeah. in Vermont. It's a social justice scholarship that was uh, that was created uh, um, some years back to try and reconcile, right? the racism that he experiences as a revolutionary war veteran, even though he goes to Vermont for, uh, to sort of have, uh, chart out a life and for himself and his family. And he's, um, he suffers these very real injustices in Vermont. And so, um, thinking about, you know, how do, um, do we have those conversations in, uh, in ways that are productive and, uh, and push us forward as a society though, as you mentioned, right. Um, oftentimes that's, that's difficult work and, and sometimes it's hard work and sometimes it's emotional work. Uh, but I think we're better for it once we're willing to engage with that work. Well, it also makes me remember that, um, the university of Vermont also, uh, recently had an opening in, uh, African-American history, uh, at the university. So hopefully, uh, whoever gets that job is listening to this and make sure that they incorporate uh, Jeffrey Brace in their classroom. Uh, so who knows? They might be listening for all we know. Um, but it also makes me think as well um, about, you know, overall messaging. And and so for me, it, it, I'm interested to know for you as the author, this is a book that, you know, uh, has been... A, Oh, I guess now over a decade in the making. And so what message do you hope readers of Almost Dead um, ultimately receive uh, from engaging your ideas? What, what are your what are your hopes for, for your readers? So uh, thank you for that question. I think it's a useful question to really sum things up. And um, so I, I would like the readers to take away a, a, a couple of things or a few things. I want them to see enslaved people and the cities that they inhabited as uh, multivalent and multidimensional. 
Um, but I think more than anything, I want them to see this as a human story, right? To see how these enslaved individuals and and uh, and communities they traverse the spectrum of human emotion, and they work to uh, resist, rebuild. Um, they strive to endure, and they strive to really hold on to um, traditions and ways that are uh, are extraordinarily human, and that does not negate um, the suffering that they endure or the oppression that is clearly present, right? Uh, but I think it tells a fuller story of what it means to be enslaved and reminds us of, of the humanity of um, of those folks that are enslaved. Very well. And so um, I, have a, I have one other question before we ask you the last one. So Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, author of Never Caught, The Washington's <laughs> Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave on a Judge, wrote a prominent blurb on your book, and I'm going to read it. With a brave and masterful handling of sources, Michael Lawrence Dickinson moves beyond the bodily trauma of slavery in the Black urban Atlantic and dives directly into the souls of his subjects. Almost Dead is a deeply moving and important work that censors the power of Black survival and rebirth in the early Anglo-Atlantic world, end quote. I see you smiling. I see you smiling, my brother. So, so tell us what Dr. Eric Armstrong Dunbar means to you and also to this particular project as well, along with uh, Dr. Uh, Malova as well, who I know, you know, you worked with at the University of Delaware. Certainly. So I'll start by thanking Dr. Dunbar for that that uh, really thoughtful and um, uh, meaningful quote, given uh, who it's coming from and some of the incredible work she um, she has done with um, with Never Caught and so many other um, uh, so much uh, of her work um, of recovery and examining um, the lived experiences of uh, enslaved and free uh, people of African descent. Um, to answer to answer your question, uh, you're you're asking about my academic parents, as I would I would refer to them as um, uh, W. Maloba and uh, Eric Armstrong Dunbar. They they have been essential in my um, in my uh, growth as a historian, as 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 a, as a uh, student, as um, as a scholar, um, as a teacher. Um, I actually uh, met. Um, Erica, when I was um, when I was early in my uh, undergraduate career, and she pulled me aside, and and I was planning on going to med school, um, and I actually just enjoyed history as sort of a hobby, and she pulled me aside and, and said, you know, what if you did this for a living? And it had never occurred to me, right? And I think this is also an argument for uh, for having people that look like me in spaces of uh, academia, right? Because that had never even crossed my mind, right? To um, because uh, she, I believe she was my first. Um, she was my first black professor, right? To be able to uh, imagine a, a, a reality where uh, where I could do this kind of work um, to learn more about myself, my um, uh, the past of uh, people of African descent, and really communicate those stories. Um, and uh, and so Erica and Maloba have been essential in in doing just that, fostering and and um, helping me see what that work looks like. Um, as well as helping me to appreciate the the value of mentorship and appreciate the value of um, of uh, trying to uh, make sure that um, that stories of um, of black people are told, come to the fore, and are um, are prioritized as well as um, 
as are given, you know, their, their due attention. And so I'm extremely grateful to both of them. Um, and I will sing their praises often uh, because I, uh, this work, as I mentioned, if you look at the acknowledgements, it's a reflection of, of their hard work and investment in me um, and how I sort of envision historical scholarship and I, how I envision, right, the importance of um, of this kind of work and its larger uh, impact, potential impact on the profession, but beyond the profession as well. Dr. Dunbar, Dr. Malova, <laughs> I know y'all hear that. I know y'all hear that and everybody else. Um, and, and, and yeah, no, I, I, I love that. And, you know, I've definitely uh, benefited, Lord knows, in, in a myriad of different ways uh, from Dr. Dunbar's mentorship and um, care um, and, just like I remember like literally right before the pandemic happened, you know, I was like, I was in a rut, like real bad. And like she noticed it was, she remember she hit me up like, yo, dude, you good? And like that was one of the I think one of the first times um I was actually we had spoken in the break area at the historical society of um uh Pennsylvania. And I remember um honestly we're just trying to we we're only supposed to really talk about the, you know, some of the mm-hmm. uh, archives because I was trying to write a paper, uh, seminar paper. And I remember like I had a bad first semester. Like I didn't, I didn't do as well as what I should have. And like, I'd let that migrate into the next semester. And she was like, you good? Like, like, everything else, you good? And like, I think that was one of the first times ever, or at least I can ever remember of, of a professor actually asking me, are you okay? And like that to me was, um, you know, a pivotal moment uh, for me as a, as a, as a student, as a mentee, but also mm-hmm. as a person, mm-hmm. because I've chosen like, this is what I want, like, like you, like she asked with you, you know, do you, would you think about doing this for, for a living? And I had made that choice. And like things were not going as well as what I wanted them to. And so that opened a door, a, a, a huge door for me to, to talk a bit about like, you know, things that had come over from the other semester and how I, how I did. And so, you know, shout out to, I think this is a great moment to show great mentorship can literally change mm-hmm. your life. That's very like, true. Literally change lives. Um, and how, unfortunately, on the flip side, a lack of mentorship, period, or just just bad mentorship can also turn your life in another way um, as well. So, you know, this is a great moment to talk about mentorship. That's that's very true. I think that's I mean, so this is a moment, I think, in for our for our teachers out there or instructors, professors, right, that we can see, right, the power of of investing in um, in our students. Right. Because I know I pay it forward to my students. And um, and I, I think this is really important, not only about, you know, the work of historical examination. Right. That's that's important. But um, and, and of course, um uh, preparation and training. But, you know, also this, this is uh mentorship done well particularly for you know um for uh our our black and brown students right that that really matters i mean um full disclosure i'm a first generation college student and so these things really matter in terms of making sure um that 
we are giving students the the support that they need to do dynamic or, or conduct dynamic research and be the scholars of the next generation. Um, and and so I want to applaud that work as you are. I think we should applaud that work for folks out there who are engaging with their, their students in that way and trying to uh, be supportive um, in order to make sure that uh, that these spaces in academia are uh, are as diverse as they should be, and uh, the work of Black stories are being told um, and and being championed in that way. For sure, and so um, we're gonna end this on a musical note. Um, <laughs> so, last question: um, because I rarely work long stretches without music or something playing in the background. Went to a concert from Bilal last night. Um, for you, if you could curate a playlist based on your book of seven different songs for this playlist, or you can choose even more than seven. Don't, don't (laughs) let, don't let the discipline of seven stop you here. Uh, what songs do you think would most represent, uh, Almost Dead if you were to choose this, this, uh, set list? So this is an interesting question, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat on this. So, um, just background, right? And speaking of you know investment in people and and you know uh, folks, I am indebted to for this this project and my um, and my larger career and, and life and and everything. Um, it, 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 those of you who uh, read the book uh, will likely notice I actually dedicate it to my mother. Um, she unfortunately she passed away when I was when I was writing it. Uh, but she did leave me her record collection, which was also my grandmother's record collection, and so, uh, and so, it spans the the gambit, right, from blues to jazz to Motown to uh, she was a, a very spiritual woman, and my faith is very close to me too, so gospel and hymns, right, and so I think that really helps us again this spectrum of human emotion that that uh, that the book really traverses, right, the the suffering, but also. Uh, the struggle and the love and the uh, the insistence on um, on community building, right? That that really matter and help us understand what it means to be in these spaces. So so I, I'll I'll just I'll leave it very broad because that those are all very broad genres. But I think that really helps me to uh, to you know communicate um, how the the book works to help us understand you know humanity because I, I think all those genres traverse humanity. And, and our various emotional states and and um, and um, and the like in very real ways that tell a very real story about very real human beings um, of African descent who struggled to survive in the Atlantic. And I, I really appreciate you for that. And it also goes to show that now, whenever you listen to any of the records that you just mentioned. As always, as a way to remember um, your 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 mother, and so that that's that's a that's a beautiful ode, um, and it's also a great way to even connect to the book as well, because despite people not being here, you still can have something to remember them by, uh-huh. um, and so I think that that's once again a a, um, a beautiful um, ode, and also a great way for us to. To close up shop on part one of our conversation because part two will be with, for, for the next work that you're doing as well to, to come on here and, and to converse about. And y'all, we've had the amazing opportunity to chat with uh, Dr. Michael Lawrence Dickinson, author of Almost Dead, Slavery and so- Social Rebirth in the Black Urban Atlantic. 
from 1680 to 1807. And Brother Dickinson is an assistant professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. And y'all, if you enjoy this conversation, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please, you know, rate us and review us wherever you get them. So you can, so we can know how we doing this. How we, how, how can we ever improve if we don't know where to improve from? So um, until next time, y'all, I'm your host of New Books and Af- of African-American Studies, uh, Adam McNeil. And once again, we had a convo with Dr. Michael Lawrence Dickinson. And until next time, y'all, be well and be good. Over and out.